If you're honest, I think for many people on the face of the globe, Christianity is viewed as a crutch. Something helpful to get through life on. Another expression of just the same religious principles that we find all over planet Earth. As you stand back and you look at the events of life, at sickness, at suffering, at, at success, at the sorrows, it seems that they, well, they come equally to all. There's not just one religion or, or, or worldview type that seems to be freed from them, but universally, these things seem to apply to everyone. I think uh, the words of R.E.M., if you know that band, kind of instrumental for me, everybody hurts sometimes, right? And you know it, good. But it's true, isn't it? There's there's a reason why that that song took off, and it's kind of an anthem for when, you know, you break up with someone, you just put it on. Or when something bad happens, it's okay because everybody hurts sometimes. But the question that I think we ask, no matter what background we come from, no matter what our view of religion and life is, is where is God when it hurts? Is, is there a God? Is there someone out there? And if he is, where is he when life sucks, when things go on? And my hunch is that for a number of you, you've faced a question like that throughout your life already. Or you might be facing that right now, thinking through, where is God? When life sucks, when it hurts. Maybe for you, you've experienced some sort of distance between you and, and God, some sort of dissonance. What, what, what is going on? And you feel dry and tired and frustrated at life. The temptation at that point can be to stand back for us and think, well, look, all religions are the same. They're all, they're all kind of similar, the same principles dressed up in different clothes, What difference does it make? What what does it matter which one I worship? Nothing really changes in those. But what I want to put to you tonight as we look at the events of history in the book of Exodus is that Christianity does something very different from every other religion. If you were to get up the front here today uh, and someone from, say a number of people from different religions, say you had an, an Eastern mystic, someone from the Eastern religion, something like Hinduism or something like that, then a, then a Buddhist and then a Muslim and a Christian. If you were to get all those people up the front and then ask them, how do they know their God? How do they know that their God is real, that he's present, or that, that he's actually there? You get very different answers. The Eastern mystic, we kind of talk about their experience of their God or gods and talk about that I've had this experience and you too could have this experience. You could experience what it's like to be in the presence and to, to have him nearby. The Buddhists probably wouldn't be very happy talking about this idea. They'd probably talk about some view of a way of life, the way to reach nirvana through the, the cycle of life, and really talk through their worldview where you can explain suffering away, as with joy, into nothingness. Because we get to the point in life where these things just don't exist. The Muslim would, would kind of come and open up the Quran, it'd be my guess, and say, look, I want to show you the way that the Quran gives you excellent laws to live by. That here we have a word from our God and you can live by this word. But the Christian worldview is very different. In fact, I want to say it's unique amongst every other religion in the world. Yes, the Christian does experience God. But it has nothing to do with this view of Eastern mysticism. 
Their experience of God is not kind of all there is to know about this God or that he's here. The Christian does have a view of how life works and what life is about, but that's not how we know our God. The Christian, like the Muslim, does have a law which we want to abide by, a book that was written with guidelines as to to how we live, but none of those would answer the actual question of how a Christian knows that God is there, how a Christian knows that God is real. The Christian answer to that question, how do you know your God? How do you know your God? We'd better tell a story. We'd better point back in history of a moment when God stepped on to the stage of the world to talk about the real events of a man called Jesus of Nazareth, of his life, of his death and his resurrection and what those events mean for us. See, Christianity, unlike the other religions of the world, points to real events, things that happened on the stage of world history and says, there is God. How can you find the Christian God, the true and living God? Christianity says you can't. But that God found you. That God stepped onto the stage of the world and said, here am I. This is what life is about. This is who you are and this is who I am. Now, if you came before the time of Jesus, if you were around before as a Jew, as part of the people who belong to the the Christian God, you didn't really have those events of the life of Jesus. But I want to say that there was news that they held on to, events that kind of shaped who these people were and who their God was. And as you look throughout the whole Bible, the accounts of these people called Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, we keep seeing that they refer back to the events that happened previously, and most of them in a book called Exodus. See, while the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the historic accounts of how God stepped into the world most clearly in his son Jesus, if you live pre-Jesus, then the clearest events of how the God of the universe acted in the past are found in the book of Exodus. In a sense, Exodus would be your Gospels. Your news of how God acted in the world around us. And so we now get to turn to these events and see how God has acted in the world around the book of Exodus. Now, if it's your first week uh, coming along this week, it's great that you're here. Uh, It's always great to come to church, but we're starting this new series in the book of Exodus this week. Um, So I want to keep encouraging you, come along and check out what this God of history has to say. But as we open up the pages of history, we actually get to meet God himself. So the word Exodus, which the book is titled, just means the way out. Exodus is the way out. It's the real story on the pages of history of this people's escape from slavery to freedom, out of Egypt and into the freedom that came from trusting their God. Now, when we think about escape to freedom, we think about, you know, Um, doing whatever we want, whenever we want. That's what freedom is. Uh, Love means I'm free, right? That's, That's the song. Do what I want any old time. That's true freedom. But what's on view here is that that is not freedom. No, this nation was freed to be able to serve the true and living God. That they are freed to worship their God. True freedom, we'll see through the book of Exodus, is found in treating this God as he deserves to be. 
The book of Exodus is not a declaration of independence. Here I am, free. It's a declaration of dependence on the true and living God. It's a declaration of dependence on the true and living God. So let's open up and have a look at the pages of history and see what it has to show us about who this God is, where he is, how we might know him. And when we feel dry and tired and like he is so far away, how, how do we think about that? Exodus 1 verse 1. The book starts, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, let me get a bit interactive tonight. A few things to look through. This will kind of twist through the story, so to keep us awake. Um, who can tell me what the first word of the book of Exodus is? Who wasn't here this morning? Yeah, Jay. These. Good work. Excellent. But you're wrong. See, whose first word in the book of Exodus, kind of show of hands, says these? Who's got the passage open, or if you're looking on the screen, put your hand up, because it says these as well up there. Yeah, right, okay. In Hebrew, the first word is this, and. That's the first word. Now, why haven't they translated it that way for us? Well, we all know, right? Any English majors here? You never start a sentence with the word and. I had that helpfully bashed into my head. You don't start with and. No one starts a sentence with and, except Moses. When he starts the book of Exodus, why would he start with and these are the names of the sons of Israel? I'll tell you why. Because this story has a background. It comes in a history of what's gone on in the book before it. You see, Moses, who wrote Exodus, wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books that are kind of held together as what Christians call the Pentateuch. Why do they call that? Five Pentateuch together. I think that's what Tuch actually means. But it's these five books together uh, that we understand as what the rest of the Bible calls the law. And now, uh, what we're seeing is that this part of Exodus comes in a context. Um, so, if you just want to turn back, if you've got a, a, a real kind of paper Bible, uh, turn back to Genesis chapter 50, and you'll see the last chapter of Genesis there. And if you've got a digital one, you can just flick back to Genesis, click the back button. Okay, so it's everyone in Genesis chapter 50. I want to just get there. So, I, I want you to feel this. I want you to feel what's about to go on. Uh, Throughout Genesis, we've been hearing the story of the promise of God through the people of um, Israel, who originally was a promise of God to Abraham. God gave him this promise that they would be great, they would have the great land, they would have great blessing, and that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed, and he would have his descendants as numerous as the stars. And we've traced that promise throughout the book of Genesis. We've gotten to the end of Genesis, and we've seen the story of Joseph, who's in Egypt, and the Pharaohs listening to him. Everything's sweet. So there we are, Genesis chapter 50, the last line of that tells us that Joseph died. I want you now to flip over to Exodus chapter 1. Everyone done that? That's 400 years. That flip from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1 is 400 years of history. A lot has gone on in that time, and you can imagine as you come along and think, what happened in these 400 years? You're thinking, what happened to these promises of God to Abraham? that God would bless him and make him great and have many, many descendants. And as we start the book of Exodus, you're kind of expecting maybe something huge, something big, something growing. And then we see these families in verse 2. These are the sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. There's a list here of some families. It looks small, 
a little bit underwhelming if you're expecting that this nation would be huge, that God's promises would come to his people. And then as you look into the details of these verses, you start to think through. These names are in an odd order. Normally you kind of list people in, in, in the way of oldest to youngest. Um, but this isn't oldest to youngest. I don't know if you noticed that. If you remember back, who was the youngest of all the tribes? Benjamin, right? Okay. Yeah, he's in the middle. Uh, what's actually on show here is that Moses is showing you that there are actually families. He's picturing this as a family group. Let me show you the next slide. See, they're actually listed in order to who was their mum. You've got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. See that? Zechariah and Zebulun, they're all from Leah's, they're all Leah, from Leah. And at that point, you kind of go, Leah was the first wife of Jacob. But remember, Jacob really loved Rachel. Rachel was who he loved, and that was who God promised you, know, you, you would have a child with, and he's excited. And what happens there? Then Benjamin gets in the middle. He's the child who's still alive because well, Joseph has died in, in Egypt. And then we get the rest, Dan and Naphtali, together with Bilhah, who was one of Rachel's servants. And then at the end, Gad and Asher, who kind of get as, as the least favorite wife's servants' children. Right? So you kind of get it all picked together here, just calling it how it is, within their family groups. Why? Why is this important? I think it's important because we're seeing that at the start of the book of Exodus, there's a little group of people organized by their family by their mums. And we hear that the book starts about the story of the sons of Israel. Israel was the name God gave to Jacob, saying that he would make him into a nation. It's the name of the nation of God's people. And at the start, we just have a small family. But have a look down to chapter uh, 1, verse 6. Remember, there's a little family on view. Then this happens. Verse 6. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now, at that point, um, hey guys, welcome. No, no, anytime. Um, so at that time, the land was, was filled with Israelites. And at that point, it should be ringing bells for us. If you're a Bible reader and, and you know the story of Genesis, then you're like, I've heard that phrase before. Uh, there's a big th- picture that's on view here. Extremely numerous, fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied. Where have we heard those words before, be fruitful and multiply? Well, the start of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1:28. Have a look, it's on the screen. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. There seems to be... Hints of the same God behind this book. And the same promises are there and commands. This here is God's command to his people. He's made them and he said, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Many people think that the God of the Bible is a killjoy. He's a God who's not excited about life and who doesn't want you to live and doesn't want you to enjoy life. But his first command to Adam and Eve is to have sex. That's what he's saying. Fill the earth, subdue it, enjoy. Sex is good. It's something that God has made for his creation to be done in the way he's set it up with a husband and a wife married together for life. But his command is to fill the earth. That's part of what it means to 
be part of God's image, to look after the world that he's created. And what we see here is that the same God who made the universe, who breathed life and humanity came into being, is the same God here, behind the scenes, not really that active in the first two chapters of Exodus. As you look through, you don't see God's name used much at all, but he's still there. There are still ringings of the promises that he's made. His purpose for mankind is still happening. You keep looking through Genesis and you get to Genesis 9 verse 1 and we hear these words, right? Genesis 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, God had just saved humanity through the ark, the the box that was floating with all the animals on it. They come out of the ark and God says, go, be fruitful and multiply. Again, he's he's saying, this is the way to, to, to live in my world. You see it again, God blesses Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 28. You can write it down and check it out later. And he says that you would be fruitful and increase in number. And at the end of Genesis 50, we hear that Abraham's great-grandchildren number a total of 70. To the man who couldn't have kids, who had a barren wife, now there are 70. That's a big family, right? But it's not necessarily a nation. 400 years later, We hear nothing from God. We read nothing from God. God isn't on the stage yet. And and you're kind of like, what's going on? Imagine living in that time. Where is God? Where do we hear from him? We're living in this land called Egypt. What is happening? But we read these words. Verse 7. The Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Well, God hasn't entered the stage at this part of Exodus. His word has not stopped. The things that he promised happened. They're coming to fruition. Sometimes they take more time than what we'd like. He might operate on a different time schedule to what we're thinking, to what these guys were thinking. But here's the thing to remember. God remembers his promises. God keeps his promises. The God who remembers his promises saw his people fruitfully multiplying and filling the land. But the Egyptians forget the God who blessed them. They forget that it was through Joseph that they were able to to weather the the famine that happened and that made Egypt the center of the trade at that time. They forget it. And in chapter 1, verse 8, the whole tone of Exodus changes. A new king is on the stage. Have a look. Chapter 1, verse 8. A new king who had not known Joseph came into power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they'll multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. This new king, Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh comes onto the scene. And what's interesting to note at this point is, We're not told his name. This seemingly powerful king enters into the stage and we just don't even know his name. We have listed for us the names of the families of Jacob. But this new power is without personality. He's without a name. And this new king doesn't like these people, these Hebrews, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he subjects them to slavery. 
Now, I'd heard this story many times before, and it always made sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I could understand why I wouldn't want a nation rising up within a nation. Right? What would be your biggest fear if you were the kind of king in control? For me, it would be that they'd overpower us and take over and take all our stuff, and, and like, they'd just rule the place and stay there. But did you notice, it's not that. He's not worried that they would overpower Egypt and stay in Egypt and boot all the Egyptians out. He's worried that the Israelites would leave Egypt. Have a look. If war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Pharaoh's fear was losing his power and prosperity. See, ironically, it his power and prosperity and the good things that he inherited from the nations before had come and been provided by the people of God, by the Jews. They were the way that he could sit in comfort. As they worked harder and harder and provided more and more, he could sit back and see his nation prosper. It was driven by comfort and pleasure that he subjected these people to slavery so they would stay. And so he starts this new regime, and it has three stages. Number one, he oppresses them. I think the idea is to keep their numbers down, make them work harder, make their bodies work out quicker. They'll die. They won't be so large and overtake us. They'll remember, we are the boss. We are in control. And so he subjects them to forced labor. But the funny thing is, again, with God totally absent from the storyline, the more he oppresses them, the bigger they grow, the more they multiply. What does that tell you? It tells you that you simply can't stop the Word of God. You simply can't stop the Word of God. God's promises happen. He made these promises to this family line. And no matter what Pharaoh throws to start with at this family line, God's promises happen. But that's not enough for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to up the volume on his oppression, and that's exactly what he does. And so he institutes Hebrew birth control. He commands the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, to kill all male children at birth. Can you imagine that? Every male child that's born, the midwives are commanded by the government that is in control to kill every single male child that comes out. That'll get rid of this nation. That'll stop this nation from, from breeding and getting bigger And at this point, you're like, this is pretty wrong. What is going on here? That you would do this for your comfort, for your pleasure? But listen to verse um, 17. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. While the nameless Pharaoh struts his stuff and exerts his power and position on these people, God's chosen people. His name is never recorded. And yet you and I today remember the names of the Hebrew midwives who chose to listen to the true and living God, not the powerful Pharaoh. In God's economy of history, it's those who fear him who endure. They feared God, Shipra and Pua. That's why we know their names. They took God at his word and they treated him as their king firstly. So verse 18, 
the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. (laughs) Oh, Pharaoh. No matter what he tries to do to stop God's plans from happening, God blesses his plans in line with his word, in line with his promises. Even the Hebrew midwives get families. (laughs) Now, at this point, it does bring up an interesting question. There's an ethical dilemma here in this passage that we just need to take a little side for for a second and think through. Is it ever okay to lie? Now, it could have been here that the Hebrew midwives were kind of telling some version of the truth, that these Hebrew women were more vigorous and faster at giving birth. You know, you can imagine them. Yeah, we were at home, and before the pigeon flew in to tell us that, you know, um, Mary was about to have a child, I, I, I heard the pigeon flew in, and I'm like, quick, we've got to go. But I just had to do a quick bit of shopping at the market. And then when I went to the market, I just had to talk to someone and post some letters that needed to go off to here. And then finally I got to the house, and oh, they'd had the baby already. Oh, well, nothing I can do here, and it was all gone. Now, that could be kind of what happened. But I don't think that's kind of what's going on. The kind of plain reading of this is that they just lied. They're much faster, we can't get there. Is is that okay? How do we think about lying? And what's even more is, it seems that God blesses them because they lied. You see that in verse 20? It says, so God was good to the midwives following their probable lie at this point. And the people multiplied and became very numerous. God seems to be good to the midwives because they, they lie. Now, as far as I know, and I could be wrong on this, but I only know really of two examples in the Bible of where people lie and are blessed because of it. Now, one is with these midwives here in Exodus, and the other one is with Rahab, who when the Israelite spies come in, she, she tells lies about what happened, and because of that, God's people continue. Now, it is interesting to note that on both occasions, the people who lie and get away with it are women. Make of that what you will. Uh, Maybe it's just that women at this point are so committed to the purposes of God that they're happy to put their lives on the line. That's a pretty scary thing to say to the Pharaoh of Egypt, isn't it? But I think what it tells us is that there is possible in, in this world, in the economy of what's going on, that there could be a time to lie. You know that time when you are hiding a Jew in your attic and someone walks in with a gun and says, are there any Jews here and points it at your head? I think the wisest thing at that point is to say, there are no Jews here. And then then move on. Now, if they find out that there are Jews in the room and you get killed, well, so be it. But I think at that point, you've tried to save life. You've tried to be act in line with what God would want to do here. But I've got to say, there are only two examples of this throughout the Bible. And the rest of the Bible is littered with accounts of people who, when they lie, it's wrong. Satan is called the father of lies. In 1 John, it says, if you are a liar, you are like your father, Satan. You belong to his family. But God's family tell the truth. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card to be able to lie to the world around us. It's one specific situation in time where these midwives take God's word above that of the government, above that of the Pharaoh, and refuse to do what Pharaoh is asking them to do. Remember, he's asking them to kill people. 
They say no. And they do it in a diplomatic way. This is not the pattern for how we should act as Christians. The pattern for how we should act as Christians is to tell the truth, for our Father tells the truth. His word is true. His yes is yes. His no is no. His promises are sure, and so should be yours. That's how we should act. We should be known as people of truth, known as people who commit to our word, whose commitments are yes. And we don't lie. We don't bend the truth. We don't put on a rosier picture than is actually true. We need to speak the truth. We should never lie to cover up our embarrassment. We should never lie to save our business or our degree or us from spending time in jail. We should never lie to avoid getting in trouble. You should never lie to save your marriage. God is a God of truth. He is a God of his word and we need to be people of our word. So now Pharaoh's infuriated. The one order he had given to kill the boys now gets blown out much larger. Look at verse 22. He ups into stage three of his regime. Verse 22, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, not just the midwives, everyone, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews in the Nile, but let every daughter live. And not just some command or decree from some government. This, just imagine this. What he's saying is to everyone here, as you walk down the street and you see a mum figuratively pushing you know, her pram with a little baby boy crying in it, and most people come up and go, oh, isn't that cute? He's saying, go up, oh, isn't that cute? It's a boy in the Nile. To every single one, to everyone. That's the law. Do it. That is what you must do. See a child, grab it, throw it in the Nile. And the irony here is this Nile, this river, was a river that God had provided to give the Egyptians life. It was their sustenance. It was their water. And they turn it into a tool for death. A tool to shove it back in God's face. Pharaoh is saying, my comfort is more important. My rule is what must win. What does that tell us? That something is not necessarily right just because the government says it's right. Something is not necessarily right just because the government says it's right. There are instances in our world where the government might decree something and say, we think this is right, but that doesn't mean it is. It doesn't mean we should necessarily submit to it, for we acknowledge there is a greater king. There is a God above and we must answer to him like those midwives. There are times when just because the government says it's okay does not mean it's okay for us. It's legal. It doesn't mean it's okay. Now at this point... I, I want to touch on an issue that may touch some of you, but I think here it's, it's a clear issue that has to come from the passage, and it's the issue of abortion. Our government says at the moment that abortion is, is fine, that it's a, it's a legal way forward. It's a way forward if the mother is in distress over what has happened, that we can actually end the life of a child. Unlike Pharaoh, we do it before they're born, rather than the moment they come out. We don't even wait for the moment for them to come out of the womb. And for some of you here, that might be an issue that has touched you in the past, that you've 
been through and there's a whole heap of grief tied up in that. I want to say the God who loves you has provided forgiveness for you. And we'll see that in a moment. But we must say that this is surely one of the biggest issues of our day, isn't it? Where one of the most dangerous places to be born in the 21st century is in the womb. Euthanasia is another that we often pick up, but I pick it up now because it's in our media. There's submissions going around on whether we should have assisted suicide, ending life early. As Christians, we need to speak up on these issues, not because it's our main deal, but because we have a God who is pro-life, who is for life. And we have a God who has made us and put us in charge of his world to fill it and to multiply It is never ours to take life. If you were a Hebrew in this situation, living amongst a government who is taking away children in this manner, you've been given these promises of God to have blessing and a land and descendants as numerous as the stars that you would find rest. And yet for 400 years, not for four and for four hours, for four days, four months, four years, for 400 years you had not heard from God. How would you feel? What would you be thinking? Death, suffering, violence. Where is God when it hurts? Well, what we start to see throughout this book, although God isn't mentioned on the pages of of the first two chapters, really, we see that behind every moment, every person, every plan, is God using these situations for his purposes, in accordance with his plan and for the good of his people. We see him work the whole way through. To the question of where is God, the answer at the moment is, Behind everything. Taking his time, yes, but bringing his plans to fulfillment for the good of his people. Now you need to wait and see how that folds out as we go through the book of Exodus. But we get a hint as we get into chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. At this point, you just feel for this family, don't you? What do they do? What would you do? But what we find out is that out of this river that Pharaoh used for death, God brings life. Remember, that's how he'd intended this Nile River to be, the the river that provided life to this nation. Pharaoh thinks he can trump this this God and says, I'm going to throw all these babies in. I'm going to be the king over death and throw these children away. But out of this Nile, God brings life. The word actually used for basket is the word ark. It just means box. But again... Remembering that this book starts with an and, it reminds us of Genesis 9 and the way that God saved humanity through a box full of people and animals, that he brought about his plans and his purposes out of the water. 
there'll be another decree for another king many years later when a king would give a decree to kill all male children and God would raise up another. And we would see his life, but we'll get to him soon. In an amazing chain of circumstances, Pharaoh's daughter finds this child. And you kind of like, of all the people to find, you know, maybe there'd be someone who'd come along who's an Egyptian and be like, oh, we'll take it in anyway. But Pharaoh's daughter, you're like, this is it. You're like, oh, no, what are you, not her. Like, what's she going to do? And so we, we're sitting there. We expect her to take her out of the box. Hebrew, right? That, that's kind of what you'd expect. But against all odds, she defies her father, the king of Egypt, and adopts him. She then says, oh, I'm going to get a Hebrew woman to bring him up. And so gives him to his sister who takes him to his real mum, his biological mum. And then she pays his biological mother to bring the child up. How's that, Pharaoh? How are you going at controlling the world and getting rid of these people? Who is in control here? When the circumstances look like it's all pear-shaped, God's plans happen. He gets the royal treatment, brought up in Pharaoh's house. And the question for us is, what will he be like? Unlike his adopted grandfather, this child, who this Egyptian woman names Moses, would have a name that you will remember and would write a large portion of the key events of the people of Israel. And the question for us here at this point is, would this boy from the Nile be like his adopted family? characterized by death or like his biological family the one who brings life verse 11 of chapter 2 years later after Moses had grown up he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people looking all around and seeing no one he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand What is this story? What will this one be like? You know, at first sight, it doesn't look good. Could it be that a violent killer would become God's salvation? Well, we'd find that it wouldn't be the only person that God would choose who had a checkered past. But I don't think that's what's going on. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses was faithful. He could have overstepped the mark, but it also could have been that He stepped in before the Egyptian killed the Hebrew. We're not told how it worked. It's not necessarily just walking in and they're having a little argument about what's better. (laughs) It could have been that he stopped this Egyptian from killing this Hebrew. We're not told. But I think there's something more going on as we look through these events. There's a question we're to ask about his character. Again, the next day, Moses comes out and this time he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he steps in again. There's a couple of things to note here. What's on view in Exodus is a problem with these Egyptians, and it's them oppressing Israel. But there's also a problem between the Israelites. Do you see that? That Hebrews are fighting Hebrews. There might be a bigger problem, but there is a secondary issue that we see that if God is going to rescue his people, he doesn't just have to rescue them from the Egyptian. He needs to rescue them from themselves. These Hebrews let loose that they saw or they know that Moses killed an Egyptian and Moses flees, runs to Midian, gets away, fears for his life. 
And you're thinking, great, good leader of God's people. How's this looking for the people of God? In 2.16, he then goes to Midian, he rocks up to a well, and then there's these women at the well getting drink for their family, for their household, when this bunch of shepherds come through, and the shepherds kind of want to get rid of these women in a violent type of way, and Moses steps in again. It seems here that Moses just keeps stepping in. There's something about him that he's jumping into what's happening before him. He, He protects these women, and they go back, and in a way, he's acting Like, we want God to act, isn't he? In moments where there are injustice, where there is wrong, he's actually stepping in. And is that not what we cry for? What they're crying for? I want God to step in. There's something about Moses' character here that is is good, that is right. And it prompts us, At this point, as we see the issues between the world around us, the suffering we experience, and the suffering that comes from our own lives, that we do need someone to step in. I don't know, as you look at your life and you think about the way you act, whether you're happy with all your actions, whether you're happy with the things you say and the things you think and the things that you do, or if you, like me, recognize, I need saving from myself as much as from the sickness and the suffering of the world around me. At this point, there's hints that we need someone to save us, to deliver us from suffering and from ourselves. And with the Hebrews, we cry out, God, if you are there, step into your world. God, if you are there, take away this moment of suffering. God, if you are there, stop me from making the stupid decisions I make and saying the stupid things I say and thinking the stupid things I think. For Israel, it was a long cry. At least 40 years. Probably more. But here is why it's important to know our history. To know the events of what's happened throughout time, because all history is God's history. And in history, we actually meet God and we see his character, for we will see that he is a God who steps in. Not only is he in control of all things behind the scenes, but he's a God who steps into his world. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 23, the last couple of verses in Exodus 2. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. (laughs) We still don't know his name. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites and he took notice. What does that tell us? The God of the Bible, although it may seem like he is absent or indifferent, is not a God who is absent. He is not indifferent to our sufferings. He's he's not a God who is far off in some control room in the sky, not really caring about his creation, distant from our pain, not experiencing what's going on and totally kind of not even recognizing what's happening. He is a God who takes action, a God who steps in. Not always when we want and how we want, 
but always for our best, we'll see throughout this book. And always according to his plan, because his word always happens. What's on show in these first two chapters of the book of Exodus is that God does more than just step in occasionally. He's in control of every moment and every second. While his name isn't mentioned hardly at all in these first two chapters, behind every motive and every action, he is directing history in the way he wants it to happen. Abraham's family growing, Joseph's arrival in Egypt, then becoming a nation despite harsh oppression, their survival despite the death of children, (laughs) the safety of Moses, all of it. Just, is that a coincidence? What does it tell us about this God? It's this. This God can be trusted. This God keeps his word. He is faithful to his promises. Even when it feels like he isn't here, even when life feels like you're dry and distant and tired and you wonder, where are you, God? This book reminds us he is behind everything. And this God is to be feared, to be reverenced above all others, for he is the king of history. We today have an even clearer picture of the way this God cares for us. While to the people before Christ, they had these events of the way God would deal with them, we have an even clearer event. When, when 11 of Jesus' closest friends stood by and watched him be whipped, falsely accused, nailed to a wooden cross and die, we know that moment secured for us life. The God who made the universe steps in. Oh, if only those Egyptian, if only those Hebrews in Egypt could have looked forward to what we now see. That God has come in the person of Jesus, that he has suffered death in our place. That while we deserve for our own rebellion against God to die and live forever out of relationship with God, in what the Bible calls hell, that Jesus faced hell on the cross for us. This is a God who knows what it is to suffer and who does it in our place and for us. This is a God who not only is in control of all the circumstances of life, but a God who steps into his creation, draws a line in real history and says, here I am, I love you and I have died for you. The danger for us is the danger that Pharaoh faced at this point. It's to think that we can achieve comfort and security now outside of the God who controls everything. That point is going to become very clear in the next 19 chapters. But we are so tempted to seek for comfort and security, aren't we? In ways outside that that God has given us. But we must see that security is given at the cross in God's way of salvation, that comfort is knowing that our future, no matter what happens now, no matter what atrocities we pass through in life, that our future, if you trust in Jesus, in his death in your place and his resurrection, that you have life forever. What could be greater than that? Where is God today when we suffer? He's saying, I've paid it all. 
I've faced far more than what you are now facing. I know what it is like. And I'm offering you a way out. It might not be in the way that you want right now. And it might not be in the timing that you want right now. But trust me, my words are true. My promises are worth trusting in. Look to the cross and trust Jesus. Why don't we pray together that that would be exactly what we do. Trust the God who has suffered for us. Let's pray.